It's uh, my privilege to be able to introduce Pastor Needham. Um, for those of you that don't know him, um, and so um, I'm really blessed uh, over the years to spend time, have meals at his family's home when he's opened up his home, and it's just been really, um, just Bob's been such an encouragement and um, just a real blessing to us. And so um, just prepared a little background. Um, Pastor Needham, he pastored New Hope Presbyterian Church in Hanford from 1992 to 2012. He's also has served as a chaplain in the Navy, and he also was a Kings County chaplain for the Sheriff's Department. So come on up, Bob. I owe it to you as a courtesy in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to say, so you may not be tempted to wonder if I shake and wobble a bit. I have Parkinson's from Agent Orange in Vietnam, and it contributes to a bit of unsteadiness, and particularly sometimes trouble in finding a particular text in Scripture. So I ask you to bear with me if I take a few moments more longer than usual to find a text. I would ask you to turn with me to Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66. The first two verses. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we beseech you for the outpouring of the abundance of your grace through your Spirit's work in enabling us to appreciate, to understand, to reverently submit to, and to seek to obey and fill out in our lives the great truths of your word, and in particular, this issue of humility and contriteness of heart. So will you bless our time in your word? Will you direct our thoughts, even the intentions of our heart, for your glory and the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray for this abundance of grace? Amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a problem. There's many problems. Big problems. Invasion of Ukraine is a big problem. But there's a problem that I submit is far bigger than even the invasion of Ukraine. And that is the problem of pride. Yes, pride. 
Pride has become a virtue for many of us in America. I can remember as a child before World War II that it was almost universally accepted that pride was awful, if not an abomination. And any civilized person would seek to avoid it. Today in America, it's a virtue. You see places advertising themselves, pride in this, pride in that. But I hear and have heard for now a number of years many Christians also embracing in the perception that pride is a virtue. And humility is often scorned as a weakness. Think of the contradiction of receiving a solicitation for missionary work with depressed peoples in Africa, and on the back of the envelope I have received this several times, huge red letters printed with pride, made in the USA with pride. I've heard people say, we're proud of our track record. I've seen that in print many times. And personally, we say such things as, I'm so proud of my sons doing this, or so proud of my daughters playing the piano, or whatever it is that our children have accomplished. And we see it in many other ways, again and again, presented to us as a virtue. But is it? Is pride really that bad or that good? Shouldn't we be proud of our accomplishments? one could ask, or the accomplishments of others. And I propose to you this morning, in the light of God's precious word, the answer is categorically no. If you do think about pride, do you ask God to forgive you and grant you repentance for pride? Is that a common petition in your prayer life? Or do you consider it a virtue? You could say to me, well, pastor, what's wrong with being proud of the accomplishment of her child? I mean, isn't, isn't that, after all, something delightful? And I would say, yes, it's delightful. It's wonderful. But who gave your child the ability to accomplish that particular goal? Who gave the teacher that taught your child the ability to teach and make it communicable? Who gave your child the ability to understand the language in which the instruction came? And the list is endless. And I would challenge you to, to ask yourself this morning if you really believe what Christ said as recorded in John 15. If you care to turn there, I want to read for you a stunning declaration. John, the Gospel of John, chapter 15. Get a page separated here. Chapter 15, verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Here comes the core now of what we are concerned with. For apart from me, you can do nothing. When Paul was preaching on the Areopagus in Greece, 
He told those Athenian skeptics that in God we live and move and have our being. If you take that literally, that means down to the ability to wiggle your little finger is God-given. If we really understand what Scripture says about every good and perfect gift coming down from above from the Father of lights and who there is no shadow of turning, we should understand that every breath, inhale, exhale, is a gift of Christ's sustaining sovereignty in his providential government of all the creatures on the face of the earth. Does it seem odd that if we're going to talk about the grace of humility, because that's in the sermon title and that's my concern, why we would be talking about pride? Well, the answer is that pride is the antithesis, the opposite, the polar opposite of humility. And I would propose that the texts in scripture that deal with these two subjects are many. Permit me to mention a few. Consider Proverbs 16 and verse five. Everyone who is proud of heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you believe that? Assuredly, God's saying, make no mistake. Everyone who's proud of heart is in a stench in my nostrils and will be punished. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Proverbs 29, 23. A man's pride will bring him low. Abased. But a humble spirit will obtain honor. Habakkuk. We don't often talk about Habakkuk, but one of the choicest gems of the Old Testament, in my opinion, resides in Habakkuk 2, verse 4. Behold, as for the proud one, listen carefully, his soul is not right within him. The proud one, his soul isn't right. It's wrong. It's wrong with God. But the righteous will live by his faith. Well, you could say to me, Pastor, you've uh, quoted from the Old Testament. Well, what about the new? Here are the words of Peter. Chapter 5 of 1 Peter 5 and 6. You younger men, talking to the core of the leadership of the church, the upcoming energy, if the church has that, you young men, be subject to your elders and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Clothe yourself with humility toward one another. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, for God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves that he may exalt you at the proper time. Beloved, do you believe that? Do you believe God's serious in these declarations? 1 John 2, 
verse 15 and 16. Do not love the world, for the things of the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Proverbs 21.4, haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked. And that's sin. A proud heart. So how do we define this something to which the label pride has been tied for as long as we have written history? Well, Webster has some definitions that even the worldly world recognizes is true of pride. Taking credit for what someone else has accomplished. And any time we take pride in some blessing, we're taking pride in what God has accomplished. Do you believe that? When we become angry and believe that God or others have not given us the respect and the recognition we believe we deserve. If you really do some careful thinking and praying, what, with rare exceptions, spurs us to the terrible sin of anger is that we're taking credit for something else or believe that we have not been fully, and appreci fully appreciated as we think we deserve. Pride is holding a high opinion of oneself, putting oneself ahead of others, grasping for honors, for praise and the approval of men, minimizing our own, own sin while exaggerating the seriousness of others. Think of Matthew 7, 3 through 5. If you're going to cast the log out of your own eye, you have to first do what? Cast the log out of your neighbor's eye? No. If you cast what you think is a speck in your own eye, it's actually a log. And only when you've cast the log out of your own eye, Christ says, are you then forgiven of hypocrisy sufficient to cast the speck out of your brother's eye? But for the grace of God, I have the ability to condemn in another what I can justify in myself. That's pride. That's pride at work. So, lest you think that looking at pride is a subject that's only recent, let me read to you from some Puritan authors and what they think about pride. I can get my paper up, picked off the surface there. Here's some Puritans on the subject of pride. William Gurnall. Pride loves to climb up, not as Zacchaeus to see Christ, but to be seen. 
Thomas Manton, and I trust some of you have heard of these great Puritan authors. This is a certainty. Pride, this is, a, this is certainly pride, for it is a lifting up of the heart above God and against God and without God. Do you pray before you undertake every task? Do you just stop and ask God to give you not only his favor and blessing, but to endow you with enough strength and the ability to accomplish it? If I don't do that, I've basically said, by default, God, I think I can do it in my own strength and wisdom. And I would have to say that as a slow learner, for many years I didn't see the application of that across the board. Everything becomes a fit subject when you get frail to ask God for his enabling grace. But how much better if we can learn that before we become the place where it's knocked into our head, as it were, by the circumstances in which we live. Stephen Charnock, a proud faith is as much a contradiction as a humble devil. A proud faith is as much a contradiction as a proud devil, as a humble devil. John Boys, as death is the last enemy, so pride is the last sin that shall be destroyed in us. Joseph Hall, and if God spared not the angels whom he placed in the highest heavens, but for their pride threw them downward headlong to the nethermost hell, how much less shall he spare the proud dust and ashes of the sons of men, but shall cast them from the height of their earthly attitude to the bottom of that infernal dungeon. Humility makes men angels. Pride makes angels devils. As the Father said, Oh, let us be humbled by our repentance, that we may not be brought down to everlasting confusion. Let us be cast down upon our knees, that we may not be cast down upon our faces. For God will make good his own word one way or another. A man's pride will bring him low. And finally, by Henry Smith. When the devil cannot stay us away, stay us from a good work, then he labors by all means to make us proud of it. When he cannot stop us from doing something that's good and right, his next line of attack is to give us secret pride in what we're doing. We face a formidable foe. So if I really want to do something about pride, if I really believe, says the Puritan says, is the mother sin of all sin, what must I do? Now, in the sermon title, I said I wanted to address the Christian gospel issue of humility. And so far, all I've done basically is give you a biblical and a church historic kingdom of God perspective on it. But what am I, if I'm serious about overcoming pride, what am I to do? Well, first of all, I'm going to ask you to not get upset, please God, if I tell you a big word. A big word. 
And it's a word that applies to every one of you except the babies that can't talk and think much. But by the time you're seven or eight or even five, you have this commodity. Epistemology. 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 That's like location, location, location with a, with a real estate agent. Epistemology, epistemology, epistemology is like thinking God's way. In a condensed sense, epistemology is the science of learning, the science of knowledge. Epistemology is how you know what you know, or to put it a bit more intensely, to how you know that what you know is knowable. The scripture is full of epistemological callings and instruction, and I find that about 99% of people, and I include most Christians, don't even know they have one. Yet you do. And there's estimated at least five different levels of epistemological self-awareness. But we all have one. And if we are unaware of it, the potential for behaving pridefully, even if we think we're humble, is high. So we're going to be looking at some texts that are epistemologically significant. And I believe one of the most significant in the whole Bible is in Proverbs chapter 3. Would you turn there, please? Proverbs chapter 3. Bear with me while I get there. This is a new Bible that one of my daughters gave me. It's got big print, and sometimes the pages don't want to open all that cheerfully. Proverbs chapter 3. Trust in the Lord, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Do not, verse 7, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Now verse 8 is saying in a metaphorical way, it's going to be a great blessing if you do this. And I find very few Christians that are not aware of the commandment, trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's one of those texts that sometimes you see in little plaques in Bible stores little plaques made up by women doing cross-stitching or something have done it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. But dear ones, there's two negative commandments. And if you don't observe those negative commandments, you can't follow the righteous positive commandment. Do not lean on your own understanding. That's a commandment. What does it mean to lean on my own understanding? It means to do what I think is right in a certain situation or effective without comparing it with Scripture or asking God to bless or asking Him to show me if it's not right. 
Do not lean on your own understanding. That's a toughie, especially in a country that's had a 300-plus year history of the American who's able to fix it, the ad hoc repairman. And in the beginning of World War II, I remember seeing many instances of that, of such things as farm boys being drafted into the Army or the Navy and amazing the Germans the way if we had a piece of equipment that was damaged, the Americans would just hop out, pop up the hood and fix it. The Germans, for instance, if their tank went bad, had to sit back, if their tank was disabled, and sit around and wait for the specialized tank repair crew. They weren't allowed to touch it. And so that sense of self-preservation uh, and self-accomplishment has a good historical background, but it's become, I believe, a major disaster in our country today that even in the calls of government, the need to ask God for help is seldom recognized. But there's a deeper epistemological pothole here, and that is the commandment, do not be wise in your own eyes. If I lean on my own understanding, that means I really believe I'm wise. If I thought I was foolish, I wouldn't lean on my own understanding. Does that make sense? So if I lean on my own understanding, I'm declaring to God without realizing it, God, I don't need your wisdom because mine is just fine. It's sufficient. And unless I believe I am foolish... Unless I believe I'm not a goat but a sheep, and I'm not referring to the comparison now between the damned and the redeemed, but between the animals as such, sheep are the stupidest of all domesticated animals. A chicken with a brain the size of the end of your thumb can outthink a sheep ten to one who has a brain the size of your fist. And Jesus called us sheep. That was an epistemological declaration about how we think. So if I'm going to trust in the Lord with all my heart over here, I have to first over here confess to the Lord that my own wisdom and my, my own understanding is deficient. I hope that makes sense. They cannot coexist. You cannot serve God and the filthy riches of self-pride and self-sufficiency. So, Proverbs chapter 3, 5 through 8 is crucial. But so is John 15, 5. These are two cornerstone texts for understanding God-blessed thinking. Christ said, without me, you can do nothing. Now, if I believe that, that's going to affect me in spite of myself. If I really take that truth seriously, if I know the truth, and the truth dwells in my heart and mind, it's going to change me in spite of me. And what a blessing that is. But maybe you can begin to get a hint of where we're going on this issue of humility, which the Puritans called the queen of the graces. And they called pride the mother of all sin. Humility is the last 
grace to be learned in a truly maturing soul in terms of being able to live it out abundantly. So how do we get rid of pride if we really believe it should be purged from our hearts and minds? Would you turn, please, to Luke 11? Bear with me, dear ones. Luke 11, 23. not with me is against me, and he who does not clothe with me scatters. And we could apply that to the issue of knowing that if we're going to get rid of pride, we have to do it God's way. And we're either on one side of the fence or the other. There is no middle ground on this subject. Now, I think you've heard of the parable of the man who has a house with a devil in his heart. He cleans out the house and leaves it, if you will, sparkling clean, and the demon goes on his way. The demon finds no place to rest, and so he realizes the house of his former victim is clean, so he goes back, taking with him seven devils even more awful than himself. And the latter state of that man is worse than his previous state. That's a profound insight, even though it seems a bit puzzling. Because what it's really saying is you can't get rid of a sin without replacing it with a virtue, a biblical virtue. It's easy to pray. Well, I should be careful in saying that. It's only easy to pray if we believe that pride is an enemy. Lord, take this pride out of my heart. Help me see it when it emerges unbeware, unbeknownst to me. But that is not sufficient. If I just pray to have it taken out, I will be oblivious to the fact there needs to be replacement. And so a good place to start in understanding this principle is in Philippians 2. Would you turn there, please? Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, beginning with verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Get that, dear ones? Humility of mind. Humility of your thought process. Regard one another as more important as yourselves. That's taking and having resident in your frontal lobes a principle. Others are more important than myself. Even if I don't feel it emotionally, God says others are to be regarded as more important than himself. That's where an epistemological truth overrides a fleshly instinct and natural response of selfishness. 
Verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, ah, have this attitude in yourself. I'll come back in a minute. God enabling me to that. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Notice that operative verb, verse 8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on the cross. What's an attitude? An attitude is an instinctive way of looking at a particular person or issue or situation or concept. An attitude is a focus or perspective of mind that already exists. Attitude has to do with our presuppositions, what we already hold to. And an attitude involves our feelings, but it also involves some concept. And if I don't believe that I'm to develop the concept of humility, pride will dominate me even if I think I'm humble. Pride is the most deceitful of all the sins that can afflict us. So Paul has given us Christ's example here, and he summarizes Christ's eternal, messianic, glorious ministry with the descriptive, dynamic word, humble. He humbled himself. And do you think you can see anything about Christ that wasn't him humbling himself? He left glory to come to this sin-cursed earth. He had the worship of the angels in heaven, and he came to be despised by the people he was sent to redeem. His own received him not. And I could spend a half hour dealing with the ways that Christ was humbled during his earthly messianic work to redeem us. Now here's another little piece in this fascinating puzzle. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Love, kindness, lowliness. It doesn't say lowliness, my slip. Love, kindness, having a senior moment, the rest of them. You know, you know some of you have memorized that. But humility is not mentioned. Why? Because it isn't just a grace like generosity or careful speech. Humility is an epistemological cornerstone. Remember our opening text. Here's God who says, I've made the universe. I've made the world. The world is my footstool, in effect. I rest my hand on it. I made it all. Where do you think you're going to build a place for me? But I look to the man who is humble and contrite of heart and who trembles at my word. Proud people don't tremble at the word of God. Humble people tremble as they see the infinite glory of God and the fact of our frailty. At best, we are creatures of dust riddled with sin, contradictions, and, of course, hypocrisy and all those sorts of nasty little perspectives. 
And humility is the one that seems to arrive last, least of all, or last of all. So because humility is more than just an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, it's crucial in understanding it epistemologically and biblically. Pride is a black hole. Humility is a pinnacle of blessing. So what is humility? Get a, get a bit of a handle on it. Well, it's a true willingness to be honest with others about our low estate, our humble condition. Even if we're saved, to be humbly honest with others about ourselves and to be humbly honest, most of all, with God. It's an act of awareness of our defects and shortcomings and a shuddering at the thought of being prideful and trumpeting our supposed accomplishments. Of course, the most concise definition of humility is the opposite of pride. Humility involves modesty and unpretentiousness. And we use that word unpretentious in situations like saying somebody lives in a humble or unpretentious house. The state of mind or spirit that is humble is something that, interestingly enough, even worldly people recognize, and sometimes it enrages them because they can't achieve it and can't find it. But humility is powerful. It's unselfish. And it puts the needs of others first and puts God's preeminence first of all. Now, in the Matthew 23 passage that was read near the beginning of our service, you remember Christ talking about the Pharisees. They loved tassels in their garments and broadened borders and large phylacteries and all this. He was talking about the church of that day. And pride was a dominant feature in their thinking such that they wouldn't lift a finger to help the people that they put under bondage. But in, John, in Luke 14 and 18, we find some additional insights into that end of the Matthew 23 passage where Christ said, he who humbles himself, or he who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Luke 18, 9 through 14. And he also told them this parable to some who had trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Notice that phrase, trusted in themselves. They were righteous and viewed others with contempt. He's talking about pride. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. Could you imagine a more egocentric prayer? A more narcissistic constitution? I do this, I do that, I am so excellent. Verse 13, but the tax collector, standing a distance away, 
was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Verse 14, I tell you, this man went up to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And in Luke 14, he has the parable of a dinner party where guests come. And he says, don't go to the best seat at the table. Go to the bottom of the table so that you're not embarrassed if the host comes with somebody more senior or prestigious or whatever than you are. Go to the lowest seat. And then the host may say, step up closer to the head of the table. But in other words, don't make choices that are selfish, prideful, self-centered choices. Now, at this point, I'm going to ask you to give special attention to something that's so simple it can slip right past our noses. In Matthew 23 and Luke 14, Luke 18, Christ said this same thing three times in three different circumstances. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And this is the remarkable floodlight on this tremendous issue of our heart's condition that we have certain opportunities that can go right past us if we're not careful, opportunities to humble myself. Yes, if I have the eyes to see it, we have opportunities a hundred times a day to humble ourselves. Don't take the biggest cookie if you're at a, wait, waiting to get your share of the freshly baked chocolate chip cookies. Don't demand on having your program on Friday night movies if you do that. And the list is endless. Don't demand to sit, sit in the best seat of the car. Don't demand to have the biggest dessert. And I could think of many other examples. But God hates a proud heart, but he gives grace to the humble. So to remember that pride is behind everything we do unless it's done consciously with a humble heart. So I can pray to remember that one cannot successfully produce holiness of heart if I'm proud. So one of the prayers of a humble person is, God, enable me to hate the attitude and the outlook of pride. Humility hates boasting and striving for attention, but loves seeing Christ, receiving the honor. Humility is a precursor of true kindness, and all that is cruel to, in the human experience starts with pride. Let me now, if I may, read you from the Puritans some quotes on the subject of humility. Jeremiah Rogers, most basic. Humility is the repentance of pride. Did you get that? The repentance of repenting of the sin of pride, of the frame of mind of pride. John Trapp, humility is both a grace and a vessel to receive grace. There it is, you see, it's more than grace, it's a dynamic. Thomas Adams, in spiritual graces, let us study to be great and not to know it. To study to be great, but not to know it. Walter Craddock, four reasons written in the heart of a humble saint. 
when he looks upon another sinner, he considers that he has been worse than that person he's looking at. One of the marks of humility. A humble heart thinks himself to be worse still, worse than the other person we may in the flesh want to criticize. It is God that has made it and not anything in ourself. And he considers in the fourth place that the vilest sinner may, in God's good time, become better than he is. Samuel Rutherford was so godly that his contemporaries called him Holy Rutherford. Humility is a strange flower. It grows best in winter weather and under the storms of affliction. Thomas Watson, a humble sinner is in better condition than a proud angel. Did you get that? A humble sinner is in a better condition than a proud angel. Robert Layton, God's choice acquaintances are humble men. And finally, Thomas Watson, better is the sin which humbles me than the duty that tempts me to be proud. So, in other words, truth, true humility begets more humility. So some closing thoughts here. I can get to page, the next page in my notes. How is this a gospel issue? Why is practicing humility such a crucial state of mind and not just essentially doing behavior change or behavior modification with a Christian veneer? Because without Christ in our heart, humility is impossible. Without Christ in our heart, true humility is impossible. And it is possible to have false humility. Because Christ in our hearts, if he's in our hearts ruling, he rules our thinking. And everything Christ did here on earth to accomplish his saving work as our Redeemer, he clothed in humility. And so we have the high privilege to model our walk after Christ's walk, even though he was sinless and we are sinful, because his example verbally and also what he did by behavior and action is such a perfect contradiction of pride that the more we think about it and the more we pray that it will influence us, the more it will change us in spite of ourselves. Now here comes a killer, a killer truth. Christ chooses 12 apostles, 12 apostles to follow him. And Early in their apostolic work together and their calling as they're going around through Judea and Galilee and these other places, they begin to debate a subject. You remember what it is? They begin to debate who will be greatest. They wanted to, to figure out
figure out who's going to be preeminent among them. Periodically through the three and a half years approximately that Christ ministered here on earth, the subject of their greatness would come up. And they tried to keep the discussion from Christ, but he knew it was happening. And he reminded them that if we're going to enter the kingdom, we have to enter it as a child, the humility of, humility of a child. He said to them that in the kingdom, it's not like with the Gentiles, where great men are lionized and regarded as benefactors. If you want to be great in the kingdom, be the servant, be the lowliest, pick the lowliest. The night of his betrayal, the day, night before his crucifixion, he not only established the Lord's Supper, he did something remarkable. Here's the Lord of glory. And he takes off his outer robe and he gets a towel and he kneels down and he washes the feet of the twelve, including Judas. He washes their feet. The creator of the universe did that. And we can, but for God's grace, so miss it that we can be like the apostles who, after he did it, began arguing again about who amongst them would be the greatest. If we are serious about living out the gospel as people in whom Christ's presence will shine out so that others will desire to know that joy that we have. One of the non-negotiable, dispensable, non-dispensable elements is the grace of Christ-centered humility. If we consider Christ's agonies on the cross redemptively, we will understand what true believers have always known, that my sins pierced his side. My sins nailed his hands and his feet to the cross. My sins helped put that crown of thorns on his head. My sins helped bring that lash, that cruel scourging of his back. And to believe anything less than this concerning the cross is to trivialize the gospel. Having a humble heart, recognizing that we helped bring all those miseries on Christ is crucial to being truly Christ-like in our humility. And that's impossible apart from grace. So I have the opportunity to make choices at a church dinner, not to run and grab the last piece of pie if somebody else wants it. Those are very small ones. But I want to take you to two final texts. Will you turn to Luke 16? This was one, if you've never underlined it, I would plead with you to underline it. Luke 16 and verse 10. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unfaithful in a very little thing is unfaithful in much. And sometimes translated is unrighteous in much. Now this is a stunning encouragement that God has given us small ways in which to obey and be faithful. And he's saying, if you are faithful in little things, such as praying each day to be delivered from the curse of pride, 
the better to represent Christ to others. Then the implication is marvelous that God will, in spite of us, enable us and cause us to be faithful in the great things. Is that not an encouragement to your heart? We don't have the ability to be faithful in great things on our own, but Jesus Christ working in us, if we are not hindering him with secret pride, can and will do great things in his time. And then I would remind you, lest we be tempted to look at pride as just an, oh, by the way, that's one of those things Christians have to be aware of, no big deal. What plunged the human race into its sin and misery, subject to death, and potentially the fires of hell for eternity? The sin of pride. When Satan came to Eve and to Adam, the temptation was, you shall be as God. There was some dishonest reasoning prior, but that was the heart of the temptation. You will be as God. What greater, more monstrous, cosmic pride could there be than wanting to be equal with our Lord in glory? Humility of mind and heart is God's given ability and gift to think his thoughts after him, to think as well as behave, to think as well as to speak like Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the painful gift of recognizing sin and being able by your grace to confess it. Thank you for the grace to ask to hate our sins. Thank you for the grace to desire to be like Jesus. Thank you for the grace to think through the vast subject of gospel humility, the coming of the kingdom, inseparable from that glorious humility that Jesus displayed in every aspect of his coming to redeem us. Please accept our feeble, imperfect, in, inconsistent at times, and intermittent thanks, but please accept them non, nonetheless for Jesus and for all he did for us in humility that's now rewarded and recognized in the greatness of heaven. In his name we pray, amen.